Hello everyone, I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. So apparently, according to some of you, we have really put you through the ringer over the last few weeks. Yeah, so we kind of unexpectedly ended up with a series of pretty gruesome episodes. And I mean, we are The Grim Curriculum, so it is kind of to be expected. I regret nothing. You know what? Me either, but it is officially the holiday season, so we have decided to go easy on all of you this week. Just for this week, though. Considering all of the cannibalism and jaws falling off over the last few episodes, you guys deserve it. Absolutely. Are you a big holiday person? So I've never been a super festive person, but this year I decided I am going to be, and I'm embracing <laughs> it. I am faking it until I make it. I have never been, like, a big fan of the materialism part of it and how, like, stressed out people get. Yeah. But I like the idea of spending time with people that you actually like and love and all that good stuff. Um, I have a personal love for old Christmas folklore stories, though, like the ones we're going to tell today, um, especially as someone who grew up in Europe, and I'm sure you can agree with that. Yes, absolutely. I love the nostalgia and all the cozy memories that come up around the Christmas season. I'm also not a big fan of the capitalistic part of it. Apart from, like, European Christmas markets, yes. they are unlike anything else you will ever experience. But yes, the folklore is what gets me. But we aren't here to talk about heartwarming festive stories that will make you feel all warm and cozy inside. I mean, that just wouldn't, one, be on brand for us, and it just wouldn't be fun for you guys either. Yeah. Today we will be talking about five of our favorite Christmas monsters and villains. Each one is very unique in its own way. We both love exploring history, and especially the folklore side of things, and we thought this would be the perfect way for us to celebrate the holiday season with some nightmare fuel for all of you. And some of these are certainly the stuff of bad dreams. Seriously, the thing to remember while you're listening to this episode is the fact that these are all stories that are still told to children to this day. And honestly, I love them all so much. I'm not sure if you can relate with where you grew up, but I grew up in a culture where kids were very much scared into behaving. I grew up hearing stories of things like Baba Yaga. So to me, the idea of there being a dark side to Christmas is honestly, it's super fun. I love it. Our subjects today are certainly what I would consider villains, but I think they definitely have their place in history alongside their friendlier counterparts. I can't say that I grew up with any scary Christmas folklore at all. Uh, Santa was about as interesting as it got for my family. I mean, when it comes to Santa, he's pretty scary in Although, his own way too. it is true, because I did have a friend in elementary school that was terrified of Santa because she was like, this old man is going to break into my house. Oh, hell no. That's a smart kid. And her parents had to like sit down with her and be like, no, no, you're getting the wrong vibe. And all the other kids in the class were like, Emily, you need to calm down. I hope Emily is like a detective now. Solving I hope homicides she is. and stuff. You go, Emily. <laughs> all right. So here we go. Our top five Christmas monsters and villains. Number five on today's list is better known in various regions of France. Known as a Christmas scarecrow, Hans Trapp's origin is rooted in greed and evil. The way he is described is honestly kind of horrifying. So he's around two meters tall and he dresses in a big black coat and a pointy hat. His presence is often first noticed by the amount of noise that he makes when he walks, slamming his large black boots into the ground with every step. Despite sporting a large white beard like our dear friend Santa, he brings very little joy to the Christmas season and walks around carrying a large rod that he happily beats misbehaving children with. His story takes us to the Wiesenberg region in the northeastern part of France. 
Back then, there wasn't a border between the countries of France and Germany, so the area was part of the Holy Roman Empire. This also explains why Hans Trapp is reported to speak in a German dialect. Like many old tales, this one begins with a knight. Hans von Trossa was born around 1450. He was a well-respected man who was awarded Bertvenstein Castle and 30 of its surrounding buildings for his bravery and accomplishments. This upset some people, one of them a local abbot who happened to be the former owner of the site. He claimed that the entire thing was a sham and that he had been wronged. And like we said, he wasn't alone. A group of local monks complained to those in charge about the fact that a foreigner was being given this castle and argued that he wasn't welcome there. Unfortunately for them, the powers that be decided that Hans van Trotha had earned his castle and basically told them to deal with it. Now here's the thing. One could assume that the monks and Hans could have a peaceful coexistence. However, that wouldn't make for much of a story. As the tale goes, Hans was somewhat of a petty fella. He was so angered by the complaints against him that he decided to seek revenge. And when we say petty, we mean it because this is like next level dramatic. Next, like super villain mm. levels of dramatic. Hans von Trotha built a dam on the river Weislauter, which was the town's main water supply. This diverted the course of the water upstream. There are versions of the story that say this flooded the land of the abbot who had originally complained about him. So he essentially took over this guy's castle and then flooded his new place. Yep, like we said, there's petty and then there is petty. The water being cut off was obviously a huge issue and the locals were furious at Hans for what he had done. They demanded that he tear the dam down and give them access to their water again. And he did what they said. He tore the dam down, causing the entire town to flood and sustain severe damage which affected the economy for years after. People were pissed, and rightfully so. The abbot filed numerous complaints to the Holy Roman Emperor, but they were all mostly ignored. Eventually, the abbot grew frustrated and decided to talk to the man in charge, Pope Innocent VIII. And I have to say, I do not trust a man named Pope Innocent, not one bit. Well, historically speaking, I wouldn't trust any of the popes in general, but that's perhaps a topic for a later episode. Valid, valid. Uh, so the abbot's complaints were once again ignored, but he didn't give up. Eight years later, he spoke to the new pope, Pope Alexander VI. Finally, someone listened to him, and soon enough, the papal tribunal summoned Hans von Trotha to Rome so they could speak to him regarding the issues that the town had with him. Hans wrote a letter back proclaiming his loyalty to the church, but saying that he wasn't going to go. He then decided to insult the Pope by accusing him of immoral behavior. So he basically just told the Pope, yeah, that's great and all, but get fucked. Basically. So, obviously, this clearly offended basically everybody, and Hans was finally banished from society. He was, however, allowed to keep his castle, where he was ordered to spend the remainder of his days no longer allowed to interact with anyone. Despite how poorly he treated those around him, he hated this punishment and was quickly the subject of local legends and gossip. Hans von Trotha died on October 26th, 1503 in his castle. His story would continue on long after he was gone. He was despised by most while he was still alive, so after his death, he turned into somewhat of a villain. Stories describe him as bloodthirsty, violent, and overall just terrible. Many believed he had made a pact with the devil. As the years went on, his story continued to evolve along with his reputation. Locals began to view him as somewhat of a boogeyman with a hunger for human flesh, and the story would continue to evolve as the years went on. 
Many now believe that Hans was shunned to the mountains of Bavaria, where he dedicated himself to black magic and devil worship. While in the mountains, it was said that he became obsessed with the idea of revenge and developed the taste for human flesh. This led to him stuffing his clothes with straw and disguising himself as a scarecrow. It is said that he waited along a road until a 10-year-old boy walked by. Hans waited until the boy was close and then sprung to life, stabbed him, killing him instantly. The legends say that he then took the boy back to his mountain lair where he chopped him up into little pieces and cooked him. Hans, eager to eat the meal he had prepared, brought the meat to his mouth and was instantly struck with a bolt of lightning and killed. Some stories say that it hit him so hard it caused his head to burst open. So, whether he died quietly in a castle or up on a Bavarian mountaintop, he still managed to secure his spot as a local legend. His name was eventually shortened to Hans Trapp, Trappen being the word for a noise one makes while walking to chase away spirits. It is now said that he wanders around at night in the forest of his castle lands, desperate to earn his redemption, but eager to carry off naughty children into his lair, possibly to be his next meal. And that's where things get festive. It is said that Hans Trapp began working with Santa Claus himself as somewhat of an anti-Santa. While jolly old Saint Nick gives presents to the good, Hans Trapp takes on the role of the disciplinarian so his job is to punish children. Many kids are told that he will come to get them if they don't listen. Not only that, he will come after them, disguised as a scarecrow and ready to drag them away, possibly to be killed, chopped up and eaten. Some kids get threats of coal in their stockings and others get threats of cannibalism. That's just how she goes sometime. While Hans Trapp is a festive villain, he is also a not-so-friendly reminder to children of the consequences of living their lives in less-than-ideal ways. Nowadays, Hans Trapp is celebrated with parades, which honestly sound like a really good time. Monks are often a huge part of the festivities, along with fire juggling and drums, which is super cool. Eventually, Hans Trapp himself appears on horseback to ask the local children if they have behaved that year. Often, a large carriage with captured children appears with him in the parade. The captured children cry for help to those in the audience. Eventually, Christ Kindle shows up and lightens the mood, and the whole thing ends in a giant fireworks display. I like this story a lot. It shows that sometimes reputation can live on long past you're gone. And it's interesting because a lot of the sources say that he actually ended up living a decent life and doing really good things after he was exonerated. But despite that, he's still remembered as the evil scarecrow man who everyone hated. But he sounds absolutely horrifying and he sounds like he was kind of a dick in life. Well, that's, that's the thing is, yes, he was kind of a dick. Well, he, he was a dick to everybody around him, basically. But then he was exiled, that was his punishment, and then they're like, you know what? Let's make a horrifying legend about you, sir. Yeah, we're gonna talk about you forever. But that being said, I, I do enjoy this story too. I like that it was inspired by a very real person and then like you see how this story evolves over the years. The festival part of it now reminds me a lot of Bonfire Night that we have in England on November 5th every year with the fireworks display and like people come around with Guy Fox dummies that then we throw on the fire. That honestly, like those big parades and like events and stuff like that, they just sound like so much fun. I love it. And then especially if it's in those old European towns yes. with the cobblestone roads and it's it's just the atmosphere of it all. It really just sounds like an amazing time overall. Absolutely. At number four, we have Lucy from Norway. 
Lucy is often characterized as an extremely vile-looking demon who is not only mean, but incredibly powerful. Lucy rides through the sky on her broomstick and is often not alone. In many stories, she travels with other vile creatures that are willing to do her bidding. Together, they travel around destroying everything in their path. It is said that they focus on livestock and, of course, children. That's right. Children are often told that Lucy will come after them if they do not spend the night tucked in bed as they should be. Stay in bed, kids, or a demon monster might come and get you. So, you may ask yourself, how does such a horrifying legend start? The origin of Lucy takes us all the way back to somewhere around the year 280 AD with the birth of St. Lucia in Syracuse, Sicily. There are many different variations of the story, but they all end with her martyrdom sometime around the year 310. It is said that she prayed to God to heal her terminally ill mother. Miraculously, it worked. Lucia then devoted her life to Christianity. She used the dowry that her family had set aside to help those who were struggling. It's said that she would travel through the dark alleys and hallways in Syracuse with a wreath of candles around her neck so that her hands were always free. This earned her the title, The Luminous, which is like Lucia the Luminous. I like it. It it's, rolls off the tongue. It's a good nickname. It is. It may seem like actions like this would earn her the love and respect of the people, but unfortunately during that time, Christianity was banned and her actions were seen as a huge offense. It's unsure who exactly reported her actions to the city, but many sources say that it was a man who she had previously rejected multiple times. Because of all of this, Lucia was ordered to renounce her faith under the threat that she would be burned alive at the stake if she refused. And she did. They attempted to burn her alive, but when the fire arrived at her feet, it did not touch her. The frustrated executioners attempted to burn her numerous times, finally slicing her throat, ending her life. After her death, she was canonized, and to this day, the martyrdom of St. Lucia is commemorated on the 13th of December. Over time, Christian beliefs were fused with the ancient Scandinavian traditions of the area, and celebrations like the winter solstice had become even more commonplace. While St. Lucia became a beacon of light and hope, the story of Lucy began to get thrown into the mix. Now, we aren't exactly sure of how this happened, but it is believed that due to the similarity of the names and the dates, that Lucy is the darker counterpart to St. Lucia. We do see this a lot with these stories. The distinction between good and evil often plays a common role. The night between December 12th and 13th was considered incredibly important, in part because it was the longest night of the year. It was also believed that supernatural forces were at an all-time high and that they would use the long night to do their bidding. Animals were also believed to be able to communicate with each other and would use this night to gossip and catch up with one another. It was reported that they would speak to one another in human dialects and that any human unlucky enough to overhear this would be driven mad. I'm so glad I can't hear my animals talking shit about I mean, me. Can you imagine? the? Say you're a farmer back then and you have a herd of sheep and you're terrified to go near them because you're like, what if I catch them gossiping and I am driven insane? Right? I mean, really, like that's, well, you think about it, like that's a pretty big threat. I would say so. Especially because like you're probably killing them sheep. They're not going to be happy with no. you. They probably have some bad words to say about exactly. you. The name for the important night was Lucy Long Night or Lucy Langnet. Due to the increase in supernatural-like events during this night, it was considered incredibly important to have all of your major tasks done before then. People worked hard to complete tasks such as cleaning, slaughtering animals, and spinning yarn, amongst other things. If they didn't, Lucy would come to visit and break their chimneys. You don't want any of that. No. This was also the night that would eventually mark the beginning of Christmas to many, and was seen as a marker to have all of your Christmas preparations completed. 
Children were told to stay on their best behavior, and adults worked feverishly to ward off evil spirits away from their homes by protecting themselves and their houses with the sign of the cross. Some were so afraid of Lucy visiting their homes that they would have a designated person stay up all night to ensure the home was protected. And you can't really blame them. Like we said, Lucy was known to kidnap those foolish enough to stay out too late, and often, they were never seen again. Nowadays, some still celebrate Lucy Long Night. The vibe of it has changed drastically throughout the years, and it is often seen as a large all-night celebration marked by huge parties. I think Lucy is a great contender for the fourth spot in our little lineup because unlike Hans Trapp, Lucy is used to threaten people of all ages into basically getting their shit done and doing as they're told. As someone who tends to often leave stuff to the last minute, this one speaks to me pretty heavily because sometimes I feel like I need someone to tell me a giant team of demons and monsters is gonna come get me if I don't get my shit done on time. That's fair. Right? Like, that being said, I love how far back this story goes. And I need to remind everyone, I am not a religious person by any means, and I did my best to get all the info here right, so please tell me uh, if I messed anything up, let us know. I think I got it right, though. I yes, think I did. and also, if you are someone from any of these areas that we talk about today and you have uh, your own traditions and stuff that you want to tell us, please do. Yeah, we, we want to hear from you. Love and then to hear that. The thing to remember with these stories is that there are a lot of different variations, especially when it comes to the story of Lucy. So that's just something kind of important to remember. It just happens as time goes on. I know we're only uh, two villains into our list, but I'm starting to sense a theme here between these uh, Christmas baddies. It's pretty funny that across the world, humans have come up with different ways of like motivating slash threatening themselves into being good people. I'm kind of trying to decide who I'd rather have visit my house on Christmas, and I I don't like the idea of either of these uh, these two villains. No, please don't visit me. I'll no, have no. my things done. I'm good. Thank yeah. you. In number three, we have the one, the only, Krampus. So most of you have probably heard about this guy, especially considering his rise in popularity over the last few years with various movies, comics, and even children's books being released about him. For those of you who don't know about Krampus, he is described as a gigantic demonic mix between a man and a goat. He has large horns, dark messy hair, and a long snake-like tongue complete with a forked tip. He walks around making noise with a giant chain and series of bells that he carries around. He is also seen with a large bundle of sticks that he uses to beat children. This is another theme I'm, I'm starting to see developing. Right? <laughs> Like Lucy, Krampus is said to have been born out of the winter solstice. He later became more commonplace as St. Nicholas began to rise in popularity. Like our other subjects today, Krampus filled the crucial role of the anti-Santa in these stories. It was one thing to promise gifts to children who behaved, but there needed to be more of a reason than that. In cases like this, fear seemed to work pretty well. Traditionally, St. Nicholas would visit on December 5th or 6th along with Krampus. In Austria and Germany, this became known as Krampusnacht, simply meaning Krampus Night. Adults began to dress up like Krampus in order to scare children in their own homes to ensure that they wouldn't dare misbehave. Krampus Night was seen as a way to scare local children into behaving for the rest of the year. After all, the idea of a demonic goat man taking you away is a pretty big threat. Many adults also enjoyed participating in Krampuslauf, meaning Krampus Run. This was seen as an excuse to blow off steam. They would dress up like Krampus, get incredibly intoxicated, and run around the town scaring people. This evolved further with the introduction of Krampus Karten. These were actually pretty amazing. During this time, postcards had become a popular way to stay in touch with your loved ones, especially over the holiday season. 
However, some weren't quite so lucky. Many would receive cards marked greetings from Krampus. These would often contain somewhat shocking imagery of an evil looking Krampus stuffing a terrified child into a bag or even just Krampus beating the crap out of children as they cried. Terrible. <laughs> These cards also sometimes took on more adult themes. Some portrayed Krampus attempting to seduce an attractive looking woman, while others portrayed a gigantic female looking Krampus carrying tiny men away in her bag. Which I love. I, I kind of love big female Krampus. These died off, but their popularity increased again after 2004 when a graphic designer named Monty Beauchamp published a book showcasing this unique side of history. As for Krampus runs, there's still a huge part of the year throughout the world. There are actually even celebrations held here in Edmonton. And honestly, this sounds like a fantastic time. I would love to visit. Right? Krampus is my absolute favorite. This was originally going to be an all Krampus episode, but after finding out about some of these other absolutely amazing stories, we decided to do the countdown instead. But don't get me wrong, Krampus is pretty badass. I would love to have an actual Krampus carton for my curio cabinet someday, and seeing a Krampus run in real life would be amazing. Oh, I would love it. I feel like Krampus is definitely a fan favorite, especially as we said with his rise in popularity over the last few years with the movies and everything. I like that he's the evil, well, I don't know if evil is the right word, but the opposite counterpart to Saint Nick and that they kind of work together, good cop bad cop style. They make bit. a good team. I agree. I like it because you know what? I think children should be scared sometimes. Sometimes it works. I'm just, you know, there's my hot take of the evening. Right? And you know what I have to say? I had so many people reaching out to us over the last yes, week. Yes, we saw you guys. Asking if we were covering Krampus and apparently I convinced a bunch of people I didn't know who he was because my humor is just that hard to understand. <laughs> but uh, the entire time we were sitting on a, this script with Krampus in it. So yeah. here is your Krampus friends. I hope you enjoyed it. You're welcome. At number two, we have the Norwegian Nisi. The Nisi is a mythological creature with origins in Scandinavian folklore. Like many of our previous subjects, they too are associated with the winter solstice. Their size can vary from a few inches tall to half the size of an average man. They often sport a long white beard and wear colorful clothing, including a signature red cap. The Nissi is usually a man, but there are tales of his wife, the Nissamor, and his children, the Nissabarn. So far, all of this seems pretty harmless, right? Other versions of the story tell of something much more sinister. By some accounts, the Nissi has the ability to shapeshift, sometimes into a being much larger than the average human. They are traditionally considered a guardian. They often live in a house without the knowledge of their human counterparts. Despite their secretive nature, they will find a way to affect your life drastically, even from a distance. Some Nisi prefer to live in stables or barns, and this fact about them, it gives me um, very much like um, different fae types or like fairies, how they are known to like fuck around and like live in your house and all this other stuff. But while I was researching the Nisi, the majority of the information that I got was from the Encyclopedia of Mythological Creatures and Ooh. Folklore, and they are actually compared to fae all the time. Oh, well, it makes sense. Yeah, then. it definitely does. If the Nisi living in your house is happy, you will be rewarded with protection from evil and misfortune. They're also considered incredibly strong, and they're known to help with the household chores. They love animals, and when happy, they enjoy taking care of livestock. The favorite animals of the Nisi are horses, who they have a special connection with. 
It is said that someone with many horses would be able to tell which one was the favorite of the Nisi because it would always be the best taken care of. They were thought to braid the hair of the horses and treat them with great care. It was actually seen as a huge offense to undo any of these braids. Which, this is a really cool fact again because my parents and my sister have horses and I grew up with them and I'm almost positive that it was my sister that told me it's unlucky to do undo a horse's braid, but I never realized why and it I feel like it has to stem from this. Seriously, like, you would not want to anger these guys. And it seems like people went to great lengths to keep them happy. Gifts were often left for them, including a bowl of porridge on Christmas Eve. In a lot of stories, the Nisi is incredibly particular about how they like things, and the porridge is no exception. It is said that they like it prepared with some butter on top. A very popular legend tells of a man who made the terrible mistake of putting the butter under the porridge. It is said that when the Nisi saw what appeared to be butterless porridge, it became incredibly angry. In a fit of rage, it killed the farmer's favorite cow. This caused the Nisi to develop an appetite again, so he returned to the bull. After eating it, he saw that there was butter on the bottom after all. Filled with shame, the Nisi traveled the lands and searched for an identical-looking cow. It stole it from its owner and gave it to the farmer as an apology. These little fellas are known to have quite a temper and it sounds like they get violent quickly. And you really don't want to mess with their food. In another story, a maid ate the porridge that was left out for the Nisi and was very violently beaten up by it. It is said that the man who owned the house found her nearly lifeless body the next day. Makes you wonder if that was a cover-up for something Right? Else. Like, it wasn't me, officer. It was the Nisi. As time went on, the Nisi became popular in Christmas cards and art. By this point, they were seen as more of a harmless figure than homicidal little maniacs. Their popularity rose further during World War II when the Nisi was seen as a symbol of resistance. A series of Christmas cards were released in 1941 featuring them and the message, Merry Christmas to all Norwegians. This angered the Nazis and eventually they banned any cards featuring this kind of artwork. They were so upset by them that on February 6, 1942, they actually banned people from wearing red hats in Norway as this was seen as a symbol of the Nisi and therefore resistance. Nowadays, the Nisi live on in popular culture in the form of Christmas-related art. They are also often seen as characters in holiday-related books and movies. Over time, they've somewhat lost their dangerous reputation and are often seen as small Santa Claus-like figures. The Nisi have an incredibly complicated origin story and there are a lot of different versions regarding exactly where they came from. To me, the idea of tiny little gnome-like men who are willing to kill animals and curse my family line are a pretty big threat. But then I remember that in some stories they're even bigger than an average man and that's just kind of horrifying. I do love the fact that they became such a powerful symbol though. Yes, murderous tendencies aside, I fucking love that they became a symbol of resistance. That's th such a cool part of their history. It's badass. I, I love the idea of gnomes of varying sizes fucking up Nazis. This particular legend is one I'd love to see in like a badass animated movie. I would play the shit out of oh. that video game. Oh, absolutely. Gnomes versus Nazis? Hell yes. And this brings us to our number one spot. Are you excited? I am excited. Our number one spot brings us to Iceland, where Yule is celebrated. Yule is considered a special time to come together with your loved ones, as well as commemorate those you've lost. Magical creatures are often involved in the festivities, such as elves, trolls, and even ogres. If you think Krampus is scary, wait until you meet Grilla and her family. 
This Icelandic legend has been putting fear into the hearts of children for centuries. And if one villain isn't enough, the story of Grilla is often accompanied by tales of the Yule sons, her 13 gigantic adult sons with a penchant for mischief. And if they don't do it for you, even their cat has his own festive but sinister reputation. The story of Grilla originally started somewhere around the 1300s where she was seen as a mysterious and horrifying figure who lived somewhere in the mountains, often in a dark and dreary cave. By some accounts, she originally lived in a small cottage amongst other villagers, but was forced out of town. Many poems and stories were written about her, and it's said that the original poems often spoke of a husband. But apparently he didn't last long, because they also say that she killed him, and when she got bored of him, she feasted upon his flesh. There's that cannibalism again. We said we were moving away from the more gruesome side of things, but I guess we lied. Well, don't worry about Grilla getting lonely, though. She would marry again. If that sounds like a lot, it's truly the tip of the iceberg. Grilla's name loosely translates to Growler, and it suits her pretty well. She is described as a giantess who is incredibly ugly, and I won't lie, if I was being called Growler and described like that, I'd be pretty pissed off too. I know, just leave the girl alone, right? for God's sakes. It is also said that she has a forked tail. However, some old poems talk about her having as many as 40 tails. This one in particular paints a very scary picture. Down comes Grilla from the outer fields with 40 tails, a bag on her back, a sword in her hand coming to carve out the stomachs of the children who cry for meat during Lent. So it sounds like she continued on with her cannibalistic ways and began to prey on children. Grilla is still a part of modern storytelling and children are often told that she has the ability to see if they're being good all year round. You know, the classic, she sees you when you're sleeping, she knows when you're awake. That is a whole new level of nightmare fuel. She leaves her home in the mountains around Christmas carrying a large sack. She then visits the homes of the children who were bad that year and kidnaps them. She takes them back to her cave where they are never seen again. It is said that she never goes hungry. And again, I absolutely love this entire line of thinking. <laughs> it's so morbid. It isn't, hey kids, don't misbehave because you won't get any presents. It's literally, hey kids, if you're bad, the giant ogre woman is going to eat you. Yeah, and this doesn't seem like one of those things where you could do things to appease her like you can with some of our other subjects today. If Grilla has decided you weren't well behaved enough this year, you were in a lot of trouble and you just couldn't do anything about it. Unless, of course, you behaved for the entire year. Seems reasonable, right? No wonder she never went hungry. I mean, if the alternative is being eaten by a giant scary lady, then fine, I will behave. It is said that she has been married a total of three times. It looks as if the third time was the charm when Grilla met Lepaluli. He is described as being just as ugly as his dear wife. Luckily, he doesn't seem nearly as ambitious and seems to spend the majority of his time hanging out in their cave. Although he is sometimes known to visit the towns with her. This brings us to the Yule lads. Unlike their mother, they don't seem to be overly homicidal or anything like that. They are known to each visit houses on different days throughout December 12th to 24th and basically annoy the residents of the home with various pranks and minor inconveniences. Quite a few of them enjoy stealing food and the majority of them have an affinity for bread and meat. Curtis Nicker, however, enjoys feasting on the candles that are left out and will often follow children around and steal their candles, leaving them in the dark. Another brother will spend his time looking through the windows of various houses until he finds something that he wants to steal. While Ask a Slaker hides under your bed until you are asleep so he can lick clean all of your dirty dishes. 
to me, it seems like the main lesson with the brothers is to keep a clean house. Simple as that. The majority of them just steal your leftover food or lick dirty dishes. So to me, that's far less sinister than their mother, but there's still a lesson to learn here. Keep a clean house or ogres will come in and clean it for you. I wouldn't be opposed to that, honestly. Please clean my house, ogres. Please, please. You know what? If you if you want to lick the dishes clean, it's fine. Yeah. I'll, I'll put them in the dishwasher. Go after. for it. Go yeah. for it. While this all may seem pretty innocent compared to everything else we've talked about, it was not always this way. During the 18th century, the stories of the Yule Lads were actually so horrifying and violent that in 1746, a law had to be passed that banned, quote-unquote, the foolish custom of scaring children with the Yuletide lads and ghosts. Nowadays, the National Museum of Iceland has brought the Yule Lads back to basics and they are now portrayed as their classic selves, mostly adorned in dark colors, giving them an almost biker look. Men often dress up like the lads and visit the museum to sing and entertain the local children. Now we can't talk about this wild family without talking about the smallest, but possibly scariest member of all, their cat. That's right. The Yule cat may be friend-shaped, but he is certainly not your friend. He stems from an Icelandic tradition where if you finish all of your work on time, you are rewarded with brand new clothes for Christmas, often in the form of new socks or new underwear. I'm going to sound so boring right now, but socks are like the best gift ever. That's how you know you're an adult because I could not agree more. I love a good pair of socks. Same. I usually get a, like a nice pair of like fluffy ones at Christmas. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Those who were lazy, which is a trait we see punished in these stories again and again, were forced to wear their old clothing. This was a big deal when the Yule Cat visited because he could tell who had been lazy and who hadn't. If someone was seen without at least one new piece of clothing, the cat would become instantly angry and the child would become his latest sacrifice. This, of course, is used as a not-so-friendly reminder for children to have their chores done on time because if the giant ogress and her sons weren't going to get you, you could be sure that their mean-ass cat would. So, Charlotte, how do you feel about our number one contenders? I like that it's an entire family. Right? And I love that not even their family pet was left out. And arguably, he is the scariest member of the family of all. Oh, he's horrifying. But, I mean, that kind of checks out for cats. Because you know what they're like. They're unpredictable. They're vindictive. Mm -hmm. They have their own little sassy personalities. So, it, it checks out. It really does. I personally, she is my favorite because, like you said, it's the whole family. And if you go through, like, every single one of the sons has, like, a thing that he does. Yes. Like, you have the guy who steals sausages. You have the guy who like takes your socks like it's there's something for every single one of them and there is just the history with her is so rich I love it and I I know this is just popular culture invading my mind but when I think of ogres I think of Shrek so I'm <laughs> I'm picturing Shrek stood in your kitchen on like Christmas Eve licking your dishes I kind of love it honestly I, honestly that's almost scarier to me I I can't I have to say, when I was first reading through the research and I read the part where it's like, he lays under your bed and licks, I thought you were going to say, licks your feet. Oh my god. Which really, like, I was like, oh my god, thank god he only does your dishes. Because... See, and that's the thing, is it's like, a lot of what they do is just so calm compared to their mother. So it's just like, hey, you know what, these guys are going to pester you, but... At least it's them and not the mom or the cat. Yeah, yeah they, they come and do your chores. She eats you. Yep. Or the cat curses you or whatever. So, like, you know. You're getting eaten either way. Not a good end. No. Not, not a good end for Christmas No, time. that's a bad way to spend your Christmas, being Absolutely. eaten alive by a cat and an ogre. 
It does make a good story. It does. It makes a great story. I love it. Grilla, you are awesome. And that concludes our top five Christmas time monsters and villains. That was so much fun. I, th- I think this might have been one of my favorite, like, cryptid ones. Right? I absolutely loved working on this episode. Like I said, we had a lot of people reach out to us in the last few days and ask if we were covering Krampus. And I'm really, really glad that we covered him and everyone else because I think everyone else deserved the glory too. These stories are all so much fun because they're just so extreme. Like, they're just, like... <laughs> intense but as someone who grew up hearing stories like this i can honestly say they work pretty damn well especially when it's compared to like the threat of coal like i i think so anyways i think threats work very well they probably work better on me honestly i've always liked kind of the darker side of christmas one of my big favorites is a christmas carol which is kind of a horror story if you think Absolutely. about it. I think it allows you to really appreciate and be grateful for the good things that happen. It kind of puts things into perspective because you know what? Maybe you got a less than ideal gift from Aunt Olga again, but at least Krampus didn't stop by to beat the shit out of you. Yes, yeah, exactly. And I love, like we said, we love history and I love seeing how far back the legends go because it just goes to show we've always been using fear as a tactic to be better people for a very long time. And honestly, it's shown that it does work. <laughs> like it At really, least on kids. At least on kids, yes. Now we have a couple more nightmarish cases to cover this month and then we're going to be finishing off 2022 with our 40th episode. Yeah, so we're starting a new series and it's probably gonna be some of the worst stuff we have covered to date. So enjoy these slightly lighter hearted episodes while you can. We are gonna be reading some festive ghost stories on Patreon this month and that's gonna be out for you guys to enjoy very soon. Giant shout out to those of you who have been supporting us over on there, you rock. You can sign up for as little as $3, and we have all sorts of fun stuff available on there. As you guys all know, our Grim VIP tier gets a special shout-out at the end of each episode, so a giant thanks to Mayhem Mudkip, Brian, Hillary, and Lisa. Yes, thank you guys so much. Until next week, make sure you don't miss out on the Grim Curriculum news by following us on Instagram at The Grim Curriculum and Grim Curriculum on Twitter. We are also on TikTok and Facebook now, so look us up. We're also available on most podcast platforms. You can also find us on social media. We're going to link our personal socials below along with some other fun stuff. Thanks, as always, for listening. This has been The The Grim Grim Curriculum. Curriculum. My advice to you all today is that when it comes to Christmas monsters and legends, don't fuck around and find out. Just do your damn chores, okay? Okay.